Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode number 30 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. Thank you very much for tuning in. I do hope that you're enjoying the format of the podcasts and you enjoyed the last interview with Nicole Lemaire. I am looking out for people to be interviewed. So if you'd like to feature on the next episode of the podcast, then do please get in touch. My email address is alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk. This week, what I'm going to do is give you my normal show, which is me talking to you about various updates and news with employment law. In this week's episode of the podcast, I'm going to bring you various news stories as there's been a number of things in the news this week that I thought would be of interest to you, which I can expand upon and tell you a bit about. week I have um, four pieces of news for you about employment law which hopefully you'll find interesting. Um, You may have already heard a bit about them already but I just thought I would tell you a bit more and expand on those. So the first thing I need to talk to you about is the recent decision of the Court of Appeal in relation to the challenge of the employment tribunal fees by Unison. So for those of you who don't know, or just as a quick reminder, in July 2013, for the first time, fees were introduced in the employment tribunal. Now what this means is for the very first time, employees who wanted to bring a claim against their employer in the employment tribunal had to pay a fee to do so. Now there are two tiers, the first is £160 and the second is £250. Now Most claims for things like unfair dismissal or discrimination fall under the second tier, which is £250. Then once the case gets to a hearing, there's a hearing fee to pay. And there are two tiers for that. The first is £230 and the second is £950. So what that means is in total, it could cost somebody £1,200 to bring a claim for unfair dismissal in the employment tribunal. There are fee exemptions for those who are on a low income or who aren't working. They can apply for a fee exemption so they don't actually have to pay those fees. But for everybody else, there is a fee. Now, what Unison have done is they've challenged the decision to introduce fees within the UK and they brought a claim and and it's just recently been heard by the Court of Appeal. So basically, Unison's argument was that the introduction of fees have prevented people from having access to justice and that the fees were indirect discrimination. Unison cited the fact that there have been a dramatic drop in the number of claims that have been brought in the Employment Tribunal since the introduction of fees. And in relation to discrimination, they cited the fact that this the two-tier fee system means that those who are pursuing claims for discrimination, for instance, would be paying more. The Court of Appeal, however, rejected Unison's claim and they decided that their claim had failed on the basis of a lack of evidence for what they were trying to claim. The Court of Appeal recognised that yes, there has been a dramatic drop in claims, but they could see no evidence provided that there had been a prevention of access to justice as a result of the fees. And because of that, they decided not to allow Unison's claim. In relation to discrimination, they decided that the two-tier fee system could be justified. Unison have sought permission to appeal to the Supreme Court. So we'll wait to hear whether that is granted or not. But in the meantime, the Ministry of Justice have been undertaking a review of the introduction of the fees in the Employment Tribunal. And the results of that are due later this year. So we have to wait and see what the outcome of that is. 
I strongly suspect that the outcome of the Ministry of Justice report will not result in the employment tribunal fees being removed by the current government. I think they're here to stay, particularly as the fees in the county courts are also being reviewed and increased. I think it's unlikely that we'll go back to a system where people can bring a claim in the employment tribunal without having to pay that cost. This is an interesting timing considering that actually another piece of news is that the Scottish government have announced in their policy document A Stronger Scotland, the government's programme for 2015-2016, that they are going to abolish fees in the Employment Tribunal in Scotland. So as I say, very interesting timing. I think it's still unlikely that in England and Wales that Employment Tribunal fees will be abolished. But it is interesting and I will be looking at what happens in Scotland to see if there is a dramatic increase again in terms of claims in the Employment Tribunal following the change to watch this space. The next news item that I wanted to talk to you about is something again that you've probably heard about on the news and that's the introduction of the living wage. Now as you probably know there is a national minimum wage which is set each year and that provides the minimum amount that should be paid to employees who are aged 16 and over. Currently the national minimum wage in the UK for those aged over 21 is £6.50 and that will be changing in October of this year to £6.70 an hour and for those aged 16 to 17, it will be £3.87. And those aged 18 to 20, it will be £5.30. Now, the living wage is different to the national minimum wage. And the living wage is so called because it's calculated on the basis of what is thought to be required to cover normal household expenses. So that is to say it's an amount that covers the basic cost of living in the UK. Now what the government have said is that from April 2016, anyone who's aged over 25 will have to be paid a living wage of £7.20. Now they've distinguished the living wage from the national minimum wage and it's thought that that will continue and it will only apply as I say, to over 25s. And there is a programme for increasing the living wage over a period of time up to 2020 to ensure that the living wage continues to correspond with the basic cost of living in the UK. Now, there have been recent announcements made about how this is going to be enforced. What the government are intending is to actually make it much harder for employers to get away with not paying the living wage and also if they are found not to be doing so to increase the penalties that they will have to pay. So the penalties will be doubled to 200% of the arrears as a penalty, although that will be halved if it's paid within 14 days. And the maximum penalty that can be paid per worker would be £20,000. So if you think about it over a period of time, if you're not paying the living wage, it could be fairly costly. There are also plans to disqualify people from being directors if they fail to pay the living wage and also to set up um, enforcement. So the plans are potentially for HMRC to have a team who will pursue criminal prosecutions against those employers who fail to pay the living wage. So there will be plenty of incentives to ensure that you do. What is particularly interesting about the introduction of the living wage is that it doesn't actually meet what the Living Wage Foundation calculates to be the basic cost of living in the UK. They calculate that the current UK living wage is actually £7.85 an hour and for those living in London it's £9.15 an hour. Now I've spoken to a number of employers about this and many of my clients already pay 
around the living wage amount anyway. But what is of a concern is this fact, the fact that it is going to be compulsory for over 25. So there isn't going to be any scope for negotiation or for reviewing it or for factoring in. There are, in my opinion, the possibilities that this will affect the creation of jobs. And what many people are concerned about is that the introduction of the living wage comes at a time when the auto-enrolment pension scheme is being introduced for smaller employers. So together, the additional cost could be significant for those who employ people aged over 25. And what can you do to plan? So if you have employees and you're currently paying them less than £7.20 an hour and they're aged over 25, then I would suggest, as I would with the auto-enrolment scheme, that you calculate what your wage liability is going to be after the introduction next year in April 2016 of the living wage. I would recommend that you calculate what your wage bill is going to be after April 2016 and begin to plan in advance. So do that now so you know exactly what your overheads are going to be. That way when you're introducing pay rises or pay reviews or looking at employing new staff, you will have in mind now what your costs are going to be in the future and you can factor that in. So it's really important that you're aware of that at this stage. I'd also be really interested to know what your thoughts are on the living wage and how you think that's going to affect your business and your decisions to recruit. So do please get in touch and let me know what your thoughts are. And the last piece of news is in relation to good old zero hour contracts. Zero hour contracts are never out of the news for very long. They seem to be the real hot topic at the moment and certainly the government do have them in their sights in relation to how they're going to work in the future and their use. Although the current government have indicated no plans to rule out zero hour contracts, they have recently made changes so that if you give an employee a zero hour contract, you can't prevent them from working elsewhere anymore. This is slightly different to what the Labour government had planned to do. They said that if they've had won the election, they would have banned zero hour contracts altogether. So the reason why zero hour contracts are in the news again is because latest statistics have come in from the ONS, which say that there's been a rise of 6% in the use of zero hour contracts by UK businesses in the last year. There is some question over the significance of the figures because it had been thought that many people didn't really know what a zero hour contract was or may not have termed it that and now people are more aware of what zero-hour contracts are, they're more likely to report that they are a zero-hour contract, hence the increase. So the ONS have said that actually the figures are not, in their words, statistically significant. But in any event, it's worth reporting um, that it is estimated now that 744,000 people, or 2.4% of those in employment between April and June 2015, were employed on zero-hour contracts which is up from 2% from the same period a year earlier. Interestingly, it's thought that there were more women who are likely to be on zero-hour contracts and there are more part-time people on zero-hour contracts. According to the figures, overall, there are about 1.5 million zero contracts employing staff in January this year. That's quite a lot of people using zero-hour contracts. My feeling on the matter is that I don't think that zero-hour contracts are going to be banned altogether. I think there might be tighter regulation on their use, but I think that they are a really good tool for employers to give flexibility, to enable them to recruit, to fill their busier periods. And without them, employers may be less likely to take somebody on to offer them the opportunity of some work if they thought they had to commit to giving them a set number of hours. In my experience with the employers I work with, they use a variety of different types of contract. 
So they're not just employing all of their staff in zero hour contracts. And in fact, I advise against offering zero hour contracts to your important or senior staff members because a zero hour contract gives them no incentive to remain with you, to work hard for you or not to look for another job. So if you want somebody to stay with you and you want them to provide a commitment, then you're going to have to provide a commitment to them. Having a mixture of both fixed hours and zero hour contracts is a really good way of balancing out the workforce. Again, if you use zero hour contracts, I'd be really interested to know what your reasons are behind that. Is there something significant? Do you use them for planning or just to provide you with flexibility or is it just a standard thing across the board? Either way, it'd be really great to hear from you. You can get in touch by emailing me, alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. So there's four pieces of news for you there, which hopefully you found interesting and which just highlight some of the key points that are happening in the news and with employment law at the moment. If you have any issues about any of those things or you want to discuss further, then as I've said, do please get in touch. You can contact me via the email, by telephone or on the website, which is adviceforemployers.co.uk. Now for my HR best practice tip of the week. This week, my tip is to ensure that you have something in your contract regarding medical examinations for staff who are off sick. Now, there's nothing to compel an employee who's off sick to allow you to contact their doctor or to get a medical report about their condition. However, if you include a clause within the contract that says that they will allow you to do so, If they fail to provide their permission, then that would be a breach of contract and could be subject to disciplinary action. Without that clause, you're just left to ask them. And if they say no, you're going to have to either take a view on their condition or wait and see what the next sick note says or when they're likely to return to work. Getting a medical report when somebody's on long-term sick is a really important thing to do because it enables you to make decisions about cover for your staff and the likelihood of that staff member returning. So if they are on long-term sick and the doctor says that there is no prospect of them returning anytime soon, then you can take action accordingly. Alternatively, if you get a medical report and the doctor says that actually they could return to work in their job if some adjustments were made, then you can also consider these. So getting a medical report when someone's on long-term sick leave is important, but having that clause in their contract right at the beginning is going to give you more opportunity in my opinion to obtain that medical report in the first place. So my HR best practice tip of the week is plan for the future. That's the purpose of having a contract and if you need help with your contracts I'd be happy to assist you. I do offer a very good reasonable package for preparing contracts, reviewing your existing contracts or providing you with my HR harbour service which includes your contracts and handbooks. So if you'd like more information, then you can contact me. It's alison at realemploymentadvice.co.uk. So thanks very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It's great to have you along again. And thank you very much for your support. I look forward to speaking to you soon. And if you would like to be on the podcast, as I said at the beginning, please do not hesitate to get in touch. It'd be great to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you, that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.